All right, hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I'm your host, and we have a packed show today for y'all. Uh, we're joined, as always, by my good friend, Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? It's going good. I like the packed house. And back again for another episode with us is our newest contributor, Megan Payne. Megan, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. And probably our favorite friend of the pod, frequent guest on the pod, Tori Slatton, an immigration attorney here in D.C. Uh, Tori, thanks for coming back on. I'm honored that I'm the favorite friend. (laughs) All right. So on this week's show, we have a special for you guys. We are spending the entire show taking a look at the now open seat on the Supreme Court when Justice Anthony Kennedy retired at the end of the last term just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, This week, uh, President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh a uh he's currently a judge on the circuit court dc circuit court um and and he's a, a relatively young guy he's in his 50s um and he is also a veteran of republican politics and the bush administration um we're gonna dive pretty deep into his background into uh the way he views the law and what his appointment would mean for a lot of hot button issues in this country, particularly Roe v. Wade and reproductive health, uh, but a lot of different things that are gonna be impacted by this uh change on the court. But let's just start with a little bit of background about Brett Kavanaugh. Um so he's in a, he's in his early fifties. He has been active in Republican politics for a really long time. He kind of got his start in Republican politics working with Ken Starr on the investigation into uh Bill Clinton and both his real estate dealings in Arkansas and his affair with Monica Lewinsky in the nineteen nineties. Um he has some really interesting legal views that were uh, born there and then have uh, changed over time. Um, after the Clinton administration, he was brought on to the Bush administration. He was a staff secretary for President Bush for, I think, two or three years. Um, and then he was nominated uh, early in the Bush administration to serve on the D.C. Circuit. Um, but his nomination to the court was delayed for about three years uh, because of yeah, this this seems quaint now, but uh, people were very critical of him as a very uh, political figure um, at the time. So um, how about we just go around to start, and Tori, we can start with you. What's just your first reaction to this nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to um, take over Anthony Kennedy's seat on the court? Well, to be totally honest, like most liberals, I'm not happy because he is conservative, um, but I must say he's kind of better than I thought he was going to be. And I'm going to get a lot of criticism for that, maybe even from the other hosts on this show. But I was expecting somebody who is probably a lot more anti-abortion. I was expecting somebody a lot more right wing because Trump does have a lot of room right now to try to push it through. Um, And so I was kind of shocked that Kavanaugh was his pick. That being said, he has not been friendly to a lot of left wing causes but he is not as anti-abortion as I thought. One thing that I want to point out about the D.C. Circuit, though, is that it's almost always um, administrative law. So a lot of people from the D.C. Circuit were not really sure about their ideology until they get on the Supreme Court. This has been an issue in the past. Megan, what do you think? I'm actually on the same page of, with Tori. I So I was really nervous about the nominee, and then I started looking, and what made me feel better and maybe shouldn't have is that he was Kennedy's clerk. Kavanaugh was Kennedy's clerk. 
And I am hoping that part of, you know, I, I think part of the reasoning behind getting Kennedy to step down was the was to let him know that, hey, your clerk's coming up, or your clerk's going to be the nominee, it's going to be okay. And if we have someone that's pretty similarly minded, I think we're actually okay. Maybe not great, but okay. Uh, I, I will be the dissenting voice then. Um, while my Republican friends, uh, I was with one when uh, Trump made the announcement, said that he was kind of surprised because that was seen as the safest choice that Trump could make. I think... It's a scary choice in the fact that we're not going to be able to fight it very well, I think, um, and we're not going to be able to make as big of a hay out of it if they pick someone else, and that has a lot of uh, short-term and long-term consequences. The short-term ones are obviously that um, the incredible long shot of preventing him from getting on the court is I, I don't see a viable strategy from what we know right now of how we could do that. Um, but the long-term consequence is that the court is probably going to shift to the left, uh, sorry, shift to the right and uh, be out of sync with a lot of what the American people clearly want based off of uh, things they voted for and complaints with our democracy. And that's going to have a lot of long-term consequences. And I think uh, Kavanaugh being as just like frankly boring as he is uh, will make it a lot harder for people to like understand that uh, the court could begin in the way of what uh, democracy is calling for in, in a way that a more controversial pick uh, would because it, you know if Gorsuch due to the Merrick Garland hold up I think most people will always kind of have a, a nasty taste in their mouth about him but I don't know if that's going to happen with Kevin Gaugh. Yeah I was really surprised at this pick mostly because it seems kind of bland for Trump and Trump uh, has you know pretty well-worn history of animosity with the Bush family he was um I can't remember what he said, but he was saying something bad about H.W. Bush this weekend. So it was surprising to me when when it broke. I was like, why would you pick somebody from the Bush family? The The rationale that some people have kind of landed on is uh, his stance on presidential legal liability and what you know, what what should be allowed to happen to a president while they're serving if they have um, some sort of criminal um, involvement early on in his career when he was a part of the star investigation, he was very hard on president Clinton. Um, he wanted to basically, uh, recommend Clinton's impeachment over the fact that Clinton had lied to his aides, which in this day and age seems like a relatively minor sin. Um, but during his time with president Bush, he, um, he reflected on this later, but he, he came around to the idea of really expansive presidential power and presidential immunity. He wrote in a law review article, I think this was in 2009, about how the job of the presidency is so incredibly difficult and it is so much pressure that is put onto a single person that it would be wrong in his view for um, a president to be able to be indicted, to be able to face any kind of criminal charges, I think no matter how minor really, um, because the idea is that the president's job is just so hard that anything criminal or anything that would impede in his ability to do his job should be saved until after his term ends. Um, so I'm having such a hard time staying quiet with that. Me too. <laughs> well, no, go. it's such a stupid argument to me. It just well, sounds like carte it. blanche to shoot someone. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. But even like murder doesn't have a statute of limitations. I'm thinking about most crimes which do have a statute of limitations that like if you can make it through your presidency, even if you don't get him. I mean, because what's the argument? It's like if you commit a crime that's bad enough, you would get impeached and then you could go to trial for it. But if you don't get impeached, then like you're not held criminally criminally liable. That's so dumb to me. Like that argument's stupid. And what I always go back to is like that sounds very like Nixon-ish to me. I mean, that's just I'm I hate that I hate that argument. And I also think that's like why Trump might have picked him is <laughs> because he's articulated these things before. And if I am uh, Donald Trump, you know, entering his headspace is scary, but. Uh, I don't really care about the Supreme Court or courts in general, but the only thing I would care about is uh, I have an investigation pending, and does he have any opinions on things that might be important uh, in that case? And it seems like he does, and it seems like he has opinions that uh, would help Trump. So that can I think we, that's a relevant area. Can we talk for a moment, though, if Kavanaugh actually believes that? Because my understanding is that he said if Congress passes a law – that says the president cannot be like criminally liable during the time he would uphold it. And that's very different than saying that the president shouldn't be held criminally liable. Cause to me, it's a very much a long shot that Congress would pass a, a law like that. But I think he was also recommending that Congress pass that law. It was his view that Congress should pass that law, which actually makes a really interesting point as it ties in to the Mueller investigation. Um, because the discussion around the Mueller investigation has been that Mueller stands by an opinion by the Department of Justice that the president cannot be indicted. And so there's some question as to whether or not once the Mueller investigation concludes and 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 the findings are released, whether or not Mueller will actually move to indict the president. When you extend the logic of Kavanaugh's argument on this, um, he's saying that despite the DOJ opinion, it would be constitutional for the president to be indicted at this point. And that's the reason it's necessary for Congress to pass a law to keep that from happening in his view. Um, and so that's where, you know, it, it absent passing a law, Kavanaugh's preference that a president not be indicted seems impossible without Congress passing a law. So it would seem to sort of keep Kavanaugh from ruling, you know, if if the challenge to the indictment was to go to the Supreme Court, and I think that that's the only issue I'm familiar with in that investigation that could end up in the court. If that ended up before the court, and there's this question of whether or not Kavanaugh should recuse himself, or if he has a conflict of interest, given that he was appointed by Trump, um, he wouldn't actually have the legal ground to say that the president can't be indicted. Well, and the other issue or not issue, maybe the saving grace is that with Congress being as it is at the moment, it would be very difficult to get a law passed anyway. Not impossible, but difficult. Or one that wasn't completely transparent to who it was aimed at helping, at least. And I don't think even most Republicans really want that. Maybe I'm naive. But but we're also assuming that like judges are consistent. <laughs> That they actually like having ideology that is is as solid as it might appear because you know we all hold up 
uh, how important judges are. And, you know, if we, when we start talking about Kennedy, we'll definitely you know need to mention how uh, for gerrymandering cases, for example, he was seen as the critical swing vote and that he had these, you know, deep held beliefs and he had this desire to see uh, metrics and a way to measure, uh, you know, gerrymandering in a uh, reasonable uh, consistent way and when he had an opportunity to talk about that stuff he he really didn't before he you know he left the court and so i i am skeptical we're really of reading too much we're really dissing kenny kennedy really early this oh I, this I, episode going, i i didn't expect that okay. no i'm gonna be all over <laughs> kennedy like his love is not nearly as deserved i think because Luke, I'm going to argue with you a little bit on that. Okay. In that, like, I actually think it's a good thing for judges to evolve. I think it's a good thing for their opinions to, um, it, to evolve through time. And I think that was one of the cool things about Kennedy is he was a lot more conservative when he got on the court, and then his opinions evolved. Um, so I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. And one other thing about Kavanaugh, which again, I don't support Kavanaugh. This is not the person who I want on the court, but out of the people. Um, that Trump was going to pick, I would say he's more to the letter of the law than his ideology. He is a lot more Kennedy than Thomas. I don't know where he falls on the spectrum right now, and nobody does, but it, that's to me, that's not a bad thing. Well, I don't think evolving is a bad thing either. I just, I mm-hmm. just think uh, reading too much into it is is dangerous because I, I, I think, and we'll probably need to get into this further, but I think. Uh, John Roberts is about to go through a lot of evolution, <laughs> is my prediction. I think so, too. He's a new swing boat. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that into the in the context of Roe v. Wade, because I think that this is where Roberts uh, is going to be really central to the future of uh, access to abortion in this country and reproductive health in general. Um, you know, Roe v. Wade is the, the pet project of, uh, conservatives and evangelicals that want to see this ruling overturned and have regulation of abortion go back to the States. I don't know if, if they see a vision or if it's even possible for there to be a federal ban on abortion, but it, it seems like the, the goal, the goalposts, at least for evangelicals right now are to eliminate this constitutional right that, to abortion that Roe established um, and then allow conservative states to outlaw or significantly limit abortion within their borders. Um, but what do you guys think about what Kavanaugh's elevation to the court would mean for Roe um, and, and how Roberts fits in in terms of him actually being the one that would have to cast the fifth vote most likely? When Trump first got elected, I said there is no way Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. I said that I think late-term abortions are probably going to be eliminated, and I think abortions are going to be a lot more um, restricted than they were in the past. Right now, I'm actually standing by that. I don't think it's going to be overturned. I think we're going to see a lot of restrictions. I think we're going to see a lot of things being chipped away at this. Um, And why I say that is I mean, Kavanaugh has said that it started decisis, that it is precedent and he honors it. He said that on multiple occasions within his opinions that, I mean, you could argue that like that was in very specific context and he hasn't really seen a full abortion case on his docket yet. So we don't know how he's going to rule and a lot of it we're going to see. But yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of restrictions. I don't know if we're going to see it overturned. What do you? Well, on the stereo decisis question, I mean, the only judge that I 
you know see that does not say that they like that is thomas because he constantly is like it's you know previous decisions are stupid um but thomas sucks yes he does I hate um thomas. you know he's the worst judge i know I, I i am not a fan uh but um you know anita hill yeah we're not talking about him today so i mean i would be surprised by any judge trying to get nominated that's like yeah i don't like stereo decisis uh but i i, I you know i think i think when Thinking about how Roberts fits into this, I always think about uh, Dred Scott and Lochner in that John Roberts does not want to be on a court that 50 years from now, everyone's like, yeah, you remember those guys? Those guys that screwed it up? We don't want to be like those. And he doesn't want to be added to the list of, you know, Dred Scott, Lochner, and then whatever abortion case where they overturn Wade, you know, Roe v. Wade. Like that does, he does not want that, his, his you know, name in the history books being there. And we've seen him do that with the uh, ACA case because people forget it was not Kennedy who was the swing vote there. It was Roberts who was that he found a very convoluted way to save that law. And I think probably for political reasons of not wanting to go down as a political justice that took out a very popularly elected uh, president's most, you know, uh, popular initiative. Uh so that being said, I think we're going to see what we've been seeing when it comes to Roe v. Wade and abortion, which is a slow, gradual chipping away. And I think we're going to see that for two reasons. One, what I've just laid out of what Roberts wants his legacy to be. But two, and this is a blatantly uh, you know, political argument and uh, partisan argument about the court, which is the Republican Party does not want to overturn Roe v. Wade. If I was a Republican operative, that is the last thing that I would want to have happen because then the event evangelical vote has no reason to support my party anymore um and i can't deliver on that anymore because it's been done and if you keep that issue in play then from here until eternity you can you know say that you want roe v wade to be overturned and not mean it well let's just stop for a minute and talk about the process for overturning something like roe v wade i know there's a lot of fear at least in my friend circles of you know the the judge the the justices can't just go pull out the case file one day because they're bored and say oh we're just going to overturn this and we've already kind of touched on it but can someone touch on the process for that just so we're all clear yes i can touch on the process of that um no the judges don't just like sit down one day and they're like okay what do we want to rule on today what they do every year they go through a process of granting cert um so like if they grant cert to um cases and they get like thousands upon thousands of cases it can be any case or it can be from any court in the united states it does not have to be an appellate court even though um most of the time it is from an appellate court but it can be a district court um it doesn't even have to really be federal it can be a state court and uh if you appeal your case to the spring court they could hear it at the spring court uh but you know they only hear a very limited amount each year so what happens is usually at that point like a group of people like the ACLU or somebody who's very trained to take these cases has already like you know people like think strategically of what they want to go in front of the Supreme Court and so it's usually not a surprise what cases are granted cert and when they are then you have kind of a team of people working on them so usually a case when it hits the Supreme Court it's actually been in litigation generally for like anywhere from like one to ten years and it's usually worked its way through the court system all the way from you know like a lower court to like an appellate like circuit court and their job is not to just rule on any issue it has to be a constitutional issue and you have to make the case why it pertains to the constitution the court will take a look at it and then decide um 
which way they're going to rule. So for Roe versus Wade to come up, unfortunately, there are so many cases constantly in the works every single year, regardless of how the court has ruled in the past. There's always like thousands of cases that are like request, you know, cert on this issue. So theoretically, we might hear a case in October about Roe versus Wade. Uh, whether that's like full overturn or whether that's chipping away and we don't really know what the court's going to grant cert on. Yeah. So what are some of the things that the court could grant cert on at this point? I mean, there's, you know, states, especially Republican conservative states have been teeing up abortion restrictions, knowing that they would be overturned by the courts right now with the hope that these laws would be on deck for the court for the Supreme Court should, should somebody like Kennedy retire and Roe becomes an issue. Um, but when you look at the most recent ruling that the court put down on abortion, it was related to regulations in Texas that were placed on abortion providers. It had to do with um, having like admitting privileges to hospitals and having specific like construction requirements that were basically designed to drive these uh, abortion providers out of business because it drove up their costs beyond what they could control. Um, or beyond what they could handle. That case to me doesn't seem like it's one that would tee up a full overturning of Roe, do you think? No, and I don't think it was ever meant to do a full overturn. And if I was a right-wing strategist, then I probably wouldn't try to go full overturn. I probably wouldn't even go for something that's like full-on like late-term abortion uh, eliminating right now, not this next term. What will probably go up is... uh, something smaller, like kind of what Luke touched on earlier about chipping away. I'm not quite sure what that will look like right now, but, you know, because we don't really know what the court looks like right now, who's going to rule what, especially, you know, with the new justice. And so I think it's going to be a small issue to kind of test out the waters. And then next year, I think we'll see a really big abortion case. What do y'all think? Sounds about right to me. Yeah, I I, I definitely I definitely agree just because what they're going to want to do is they're going to want to see what the court's in the mood for and to test out arguments and play around with them and see what the response is that they get. And then they'll know how uh, far down the field they can push everything uh, based off that. So I I would be equally surprised if we saw like the, you know, the the Hail Mary pass uh, immediately. Well, and this is this was Robert's. process on, I think, um, the overturning of part of the Voting Rights Act was, I think, before uh, the 2013 ruling that ended preclearance requirements in states that were covered by the Voting Rights Act, mostly southern states that had a history of disenfranchising voters. Um, There was a case, I can't remember what case came before that, but where he basically teed up this question and made kind of a smaller ruling and sort of left a window for Congress to do something about it. And and then when they didn't do anything about it, um, he went all the way on the Voting Rights Act. The the Hail Mary options, and, and this is a good opportunity to bring Georgia into this, the Hail Mary options at this point are um, the heartbeat bills, I think, that are that have been passed in a couple of states. Um, I think Iowa, Iowa passed a heartbeat bill that was that's held up in the courts right now. And I believe Mississippi either had a heartbeat bill or like a 10 or 15 week ban because heartbeat prohibits abortion at six weeks. And, you know, as it relates to Georgia, Brian Kemp, who's currently a candidate for governor, amidst all of this action on the Supreme Court, he came out and said that he supports a heartbeat bill, an abortion ban that was passed in Iowa and Mississippi, that he would like to see one of those passed in Georgia. 
And so the key thing for for people in Georgia to remember is that a lot of these restrictions that you see, there there's probably going to be among conservative states an arms race to implement as many of these restrictions as you can, given that now there is the opportunity to try to push something up to SCOTUS and see and see what happens. Um, Cagle, uh, Casey Cagle, the uh, Brian Kemp's opponent in the runoff, he also said when he was talking about the opening on the Supreme Court, he was saying that President Trump should look for a, a Georgia judge, but he was also saying that Trump should look for a judge that would allow states to enact pro-life policies. So while he didn't explicitly come out for the heartbeat bill in the way that Kemp did, um, it seems reasonable to assume that that Cagle would be looking at things like the restrictions that were passed in Texas if uh, either Cagle or Kemp wants Georgia to be the state that pushes this case up to the Supreme Court. Well, do you think that this... So, so Abrams says that she would veto bills that come on her desk that implement more abortion restrictions. Do you think that this would be an issue in the fall between maybe Kemp and Abrams who are on the, on the farthest wings of pro and anti-abortion in this race? Um, is this going to be an issue that, that shifts that governor's race? In the I fall? think shift is a strong word, but it's already an issue. I mean, I've received multiple emails from Democrat candidates talking about reelect me to the state house or state senate or elect me for the first time to these offices so I can protect uh, Roe versus Wade if the uh, you know court goes the wrong way. So yeah, I mean, I think so. Georgia's had a weird history with abortion because Tom Murphy, uh, the long, 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 long time Speaker of the House, was uh, very strong on abortion for a Southern Democrat in that time period and went out of his way to uh, prevent uh, abortion restrictions and so it's sort of, it's sort of a weird a weird stake in the you know uh, that it hasn't been an issue in the same way that uh, other southern states have seen it it's not something that comes up a lot we've dealt with rifra a lot but we haven't dealt with abortion as nearly as much and so i think um that makes it a lot more unpredictable how big of an issue it'll be since we don't see it usually to piggyback on that, I think that it is unpredictable, but I also think that it's a pretty massive risk. I know personally a lot of people who are um, progressive and liberal, but if you come down to single issue voting, abortion is one of the hot button items that if some people just cannot stomach voting for a candidate that is um, pro-choice um, or that is um, – or, or it's the, that is the opposite, right? So you end up with these really polarizing feelings about this one issue, and it can drastically change who votes for whom. So I think that in Georgia, we are going to see some issues with that. And I do think that it's going to get brought up between um, Abrams and Kemp, for sure. Yeah, this seems like it could be a really divisive issue if it, if it does end up being Abrams and Kemp, which it at least to me, it seems to increasingly look that way as we come up towards the runoff. Um, but for Abrams, she has a lot of room to sort of lay out a pretty broad agenda by which Brian Kemp would be infringing on, on people's rights as it relates to the abortion issue. As it relates to voting rights, uh, Brian Kemp says he wants to um, strengthen voter ID and, and voting regulations. And uh, Kemp and Abrams have a history of fighting with each other over voter registration efforts. Um, and so it does sort of lend itself to to a broad message where Abrams 
stands by, uh, you know, conservatives or stands by people of color, women on protecting their access to really critical rights. And Kemp stands on the other side. But, you know, as it goes the other way, the one thing I think Republicans in Georgia were worried about is not having enough enthusiasm for either Cagle or Kemp. And that would be the, the route that Abrams has to victory. And if this issue becomes a chance for evangelicals to come out and have Georgia put their stamp on an anti-abortion law and then have that put in front of the Supreme Court, um, that seems like a pretty big motivator for them to get out and vote. A couple of the other issues that stood out to me in terms of where Kavanaugh is going to be important to, to get back to him and his potential on the court. Kavanaugh has been very aggressive as it relates to environmental regulations and attacking the administrative state. I mean, this is part of the reason I think that sort of the Federalist Society groups, particularly the big business groups and the big corporate effort that is going to support Kavanaugh in this likes him so much, um, is that conservatives have this view that basically all of the difference that exists in law to agencies like the EPA or Health and Human Services um, to interpret laws and implement them as they see fit. Conservatives think that that deference to administrative agencies has run completely amok. And the places where Kavanaugh has been some of, has been sharpest in some of his writing has been related to EPA regulations and the way that uh, the Obama administration tried to use the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases, even though that that isn't something that is really specifically under the guise of the Clean Air Act um, in a really literal sense. Um, Tori, you know, what do you think about where this assault on the administrative state and administrative law might go if Kavanaugh ends up on the court? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he's I don't want to say anti-environment, but yeah, anti-environmentalism. Uh, so I'm not feeling great about that. I mean, and I think it's very important everything you mentioned, but another thing that I do want to mention is he has also not been really a friend to immigrants or people of color. He has not had a lot of rulings on those issues um, because most of his, um, most of the things that have been in front of him have more been administrative, which are the things you've talked about. But the few things in front of him that were um, race related, he has been pretty, um, pretty right on the spectrum on. So, I mean, and as far as like, I mean, one thing that's what people are focusing on because DC is a more administrative law circuit. And so that's what we know about him. So I don't know what that will look like when you get up to the Supreme Court level. Because it's one thing to be in a circuit court where it's only affecting, you know, what's in front of you, even though D.C. is arguably one of the most important circuits. Um, it's another thing to be on the Supreme Court where it affects, you know, everyone. So we'll see. Um, but no, I'm not feeling good about climate regulations. What about you guys? I'm not feeling great about the administrative law stuff in general as someone who's very functionalist and enjoys agencies who are experts uh, at you know the areas that they're dealing with and the mission of uh, their agency that you know Congress has given them I don't like courts getting in the way of that unnecessarily and I kind of am that, that that's that's where I I think there's a lot of opportunity for this court specifically to do a lot of damage and just make the government far less effective uh, for, you know, 
not you know very very just bizarre reasons in in my interpretation of things uh and and that's not just a uh a Kavanaugh thing i mean that's a gorsuch thing uh he's very aggressively uh going after his mother's greatest achievement which is the chevron deference uh so i don't i don't know why he really doesn't like his mom's accomplishment but he uh he doesn't. Wait, I mean, his mom's accomplishment? Can you explain yeah, that? Yeah, so this is this is just a, a a brief aside, and we can cut this out if we need to. But like, so Chevron deference comes from a case during the Reagan administration where the EPA uh, was trying to change the way that they inter how they interpreted pollution, and uh it's named chevron just because chevron was the other party in the case and the epa administrator at the time who was making this argument was ann gorsuch his mom and so uh our our you know beloved justice gorsuch is is very against chevron deference uh which his mother was a big supporter of and you know arguably part of the team that made it a legal a legal fiction so um i've i've just found that hilarious I actually don't think y'all should y'all should definitely not cut this out just because so many people have such like little understanding of Chevron deference and it's one of those things that's so important. Well, we need to explain when what you it understand, is. Like, Cuz we didn't do that. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, then do you want to explain Chevron deference? Sure, and then you can tell me why, you know, where where uh, I've missed it as since you are the lawyer and I'm the law student. Um, but uh, Chevron deference is basically the idea that an agency's interpretation of a law should receive some sort of deference. So not absolute deference, but significant uh, deference so that if an agency says that, you know, pollution should be defined as X, then the court's like, well, you are the agency that deals with this every day and we are lawyers. And so we, we are going to defer to your interpretation of that. Um, that's 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 basically how how it ends up working. And so Gorsuch, uh, especially, but most of the conservative just, justices have been uh, pushing against it significantly. And which I find ridiculous because I see it the way you do. It's like people spend their entire careers studying one thing, and the government's very competitive. And the fact that like you're in the government, <clears throat> and you're you know it really you're setting policy for this thing, unless Congress specifically rules against it, with Chevron deference doesn't say you can't. Then I do think we should let agencies set precedent, or not precedent, but set policy for things. So I think yeah, I'm very much pro Chevron deference. So back to the Gorsuch. Mm -hmm thing has he Sorry. ever spoken publicly about his mother and about his stance you know kind of trying to turn that uh, around not that i'm aware of it's it's some freudian thing i think <laughs> sounds about but, right. i mean it sounds like counterintuitive that you know ruling against that but you actually give the government more power because it, you're not letting you know experts take place you're letting people who might not have the expertise set these like policies and it's actually it's just like transferring power to a different branch that might not really be the best fit for it so i guess it depends on your definition of bigger government too that's true so you know it's like where is the power and where should it lie and if you're pro big government and you see it as growing part of government then maybe that's a good thing we got off subject somewhere well part of the, part of the issue also is that Congress, I think, likes Chevron deference a lot because it means that they don't have to write every eventuality of every policy as it's implemented into law, 
which means that they don't have to make a lot of tough decisions a lot of the time. And so, you know, they, they very often write very vague laws that, that give a lot of discretion to agencies to figure out how to implement them. Um, that that's really interesting as it comes to maybe, you know, if, if the Trump administration creates this progressive resurgence and uh, progressives get swept back into power in Congress and the White House, they're going to want to do some pretty expansive things on health care, on uh, you know retirement savings and family leave and all kinds of like economic policy issues where they're you know, under this conservative court, if Kavanaugh gets approved, they're going to have to be really careful about writing out these laws very specifically and, and, and getting the particulars right before they get these bills passed. And so that becomes another hurdle for a Democratic Congress um, in the way that, you know, this isn't really an issue for conservatives because part of what they're trying to do is to get government to do less and to, you know, they're in most instances, I think, not going to write laws that give sort of unlimited authority to agencies to implement. Yeah, and just to, vision. you know, create a concrete example of that, you know, we have to remember that the ACA almost fell apart because of this, a single word, which is state, and that, you know, exchanges created by the state. Does that mean states like the state of Georgia, or does that mean the state as in the government? And, you know, a small error like that could have taken down the you know entire structure of the affordable care act and that's uh you know something that Cong- you know congress is going to have to be very careful about um in general and then you know on top of that we we could see in 2020 just you know uh, in ro- you know rose colored glasses hypotheticals you know entire turnover of the government where a democratic president gets elected in a huge wave and the senate and house have you know, super majorities of Democrats, and then a super conservative court overturns half of their accomplishments. So are there other issues that that y'all think are going to be impacted by this change on the court? You know, one thing that I've seen come up, but I haven't seen a lot of sort of concrete analysis on are um, same-sex marriage and LGBT slash religious freedom issues and that conflict in general. You know, do do y'all have any fears as it relates to that, as it relates specifically to Kavanaugh or to where this 5-4 conservative majority would take LGBT issues? I think I have the same worry about LGBT issues as I do about abortion. I don't think that gay marriage is going to be overturned. I think, you know, just public opinion, there would be outrage if that happened. And I think that actually does affect the court, even though it's not supposed to. I do see a lot of LGBT civil rights probably being chipped away, you know, or not reaching full bloom that we thought they were going to, you know, maybe like three years ago um, that they could have. So, I mean, we'll have to see what happens, but I can really see, you know, like there being like the wedding cake case that we talked about last time I was here. I can see there being more of those cases. I can too. I definitely think there is a pretty palpable fear in the community. I know I received some legal advice um, just last week that basically said, you know, go ahead and get your documentation taken care of now. Um, Write things into your wills to indicate what you mean by wife or whatnot, just to make sure that all of that is clear and set in stone. Um, So that way it can't be misinterpreted based on the interpretation of the law. It's very clear in your will, last will and testament, what you meant by those terms. So 
whether that comes to fruition or not as you know something that we do need to worry about, I think that there is already a fear for sure. And it's something that I've personally looked into. Is the fear more grounded in that some of the advancements that have been made on marriage or issues related to marriage, like benefits and wills and things like that, that that stuff would be rolled back? Or, you know, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was really about religious conservatives trying to carve themselves out of the law and find grounds to discriminate based on their religious beliefs, which don't necessarily impact the, you know, the existing benefits that exist for same-sex couples, but do open up avenues to discrimination and mistreatment in social settings and things like that. You know, is there fear on both fronts as it relates to that? Or is one sort of more likely to go in the wrong direction than the other? I'm not sure what's more, what is more likely. What I foresee happening based on just my own fears and what I've heard is that it's going to be loopholes and it's going to be the stoppage of new extensions of these rights. So for example, if you don't go ahead and adopt the child that you have with your uh, same-sex partner now, you may not get the opportunity based on what changes. So nothing will change as far as existing cases, but you have if you haven't already done it, you need to hurry up and do it before they're not allowed anymore. Or like I previously mentioned, the interpretation of the will and testament. If you have um, somebody who's going to argue that, um, you know, say to your executor, well, that's not what they meant, then it becomes very unclear in a court of law if, you know, same-sex marriage is no longer upheld in the same way, what is meant by partner or wife or spouse. Um, It just becomes a lot of, like, places to poke holes. Won't defer to the agencies and won't defer to the couples either. Are there any other issues that you guys think are important, or do you want to talk a little bit about you know, the democratic response to this and, and how this confirmation is going to go. I mean, I I think one thing, we don't really know what issues are going to be turned right now. I think it's going to affect us in ways that we don't quite see at the moment because we don't know what's going to go up in front of the court. But having a red court is no joke, you know, and we were saying earlier, Kavanaugh is not the most evil person that he could have picked. He's not the most right wing. But having a mostly right-wing court, it's, it is going to affect our lives. It's going to affect everyone. So I don't think it's something that should be taken lightly, even if we don't really know the major issues that we're focusing on, what's going to come up at this moment. So what are the chances that Kavanaugh ultimately may not actually get this seat on the court? Democrats uh, seem pretty united around opposing Kavanaugh, although there are some questions about some of the red state Democrats that are up for election this year who may feel some pressure to look cooperating and and not as confrontational as McConnell was, um, given that their states were big supporters of President Trump. But Democrats also, they don't have the votes. uh, They don't have a majority. They don't have a lot of procedural tools at their disposal um, without having the majority. So um, what do you guys think about um, Democrats' chances, or actually, what do you think about the chances that Kavanaugh may not get this? I mean, he, he's he's going to get it. Like, unless, unless there is some terrible thing that is in his past that we don't know right now, and somehow the Federalist Society and all the other conservative legal societies that you know put him on their list, that then Trump put on his list and then picked him from, like he's going to get it. Because math, you know, arithmetic is a thing, and if every Democrat says no and every Republican says yes, then 
it happens. And, you know, right now with the consensus on this podcast of very liberal people is that Kavanaugh is not insane and not radical. It's going to be very hard, no matter how passionate and convincing for uh you know the democratic senate leaders and democratic senators themselves to convince america that they are um you know robert bork went down for a lot of reasons and a lot of it had to do with people being surprised about things that he said and done and that's just not the case here with kavanaugh unless there's just significant blind spots that that we have and so on that front it's a uphill battle and uh democratic senators need to try uh because uh, you know, we did have a seat stolen from us, and there has to be uh, retribution for that. But I think also people need to understand the stakes of the fight and what the actual field of play looks like so that if he gets through, which highly expect he does, that we're not uh, pointing our fingers at Chuck Schumer as why he didn't, like, burn the Senate down and, or even, you know, act like he has the ability to do that because he just frankly doesn't. What are the grounds that you all think this fight should be waged on? You know, we we talked a lot about the issues that progressives would see as going in terrible directions, particularly Roe and LGBT issues. Um, There's also the issue of the pending Mueller investigation and whether it finds that Trump colluded with Russia to um, secure his seat in the White House and which would lend some illegitimacy to the people that he's put on the court. But is there a message that that y'all think is persuasive here? Is there something that when you look to your Democratic senators um, and Democratic leaders in this country that you want to hear them speak to um, in opposing this pick? I mean, we all have our biases, right? So, I mean, personally, I'd like to see the entire confirmation be about immigration because that's my career and that's what I'm really passionate about and abortion because I'm a woman and I feel like it affects me. Um, But again, those are my career and my privileges that those are the things that I'm focused on. I think overall as an attorney, I'd kind of like to see how he has interpreted the law and if he's done it correctly and if he sticks to the law versus ideology. What do y'all think? I think my concerns are LGBT and abortion for sure. But I too would like to see, you know, the type of law that he's been judging so far is not necessarily the type of law that he's going to be looking at as a member of the Supreme Court. So it'll be kind of interesting to see where he lands. Yeah, I I guess what I would like to see uh, from him in the confirmation, see from Democrat senators, is just it's really, really difficult to hold Supreme Court justices or really any judicial nominees accountable. And since there are a lot of potential like really big things with the Mueller investigation and with gay marriage and uh, these other issues, that trying to hold his feet to the fire as much as they can on those issues and getting some clarity about like if he thinks the president can be indicted or not under any circumstance like that is a question that a judge could give you a straight answer for like yes or no can someone be indicted as president it doesn't you know there that's a broad enough question that i feel like the usual well it would depend on the case in front of me <laughs> like that that the t- defense does not work and so on those terms of fighting him 
not because uh, his politics are not exactly what you'd like them to be, but because he does not believe in executive, you know, like the, the executive can overreach or that he doesn't actually believe in stare decisis, even though he says he does. Engaging in constitutional argument rather than partisan argument, while not as sexy, I think would be a more effective strategy to criticize the nomination. But do you think... Is there concern for Democrats looking to the midterms here? Do they need to wage this fight with the midterms in mind in terms of finding issues that are going to get their people out to vote? Because you know, one of the one of the reasons we're in this situation is that Democratic voters have consistently downplayed the importance of the court when making their vote. Um, I think there was a poll during 2016 showing that like somewhere above 50% of Donald Trump voters I thought that the court was an important issue, whereas the number for Clinton voters was a lot lower. Um, Conservatives have just long viewed the court as an important part of what you're voting for. Um, And so, you know, how how do we change the discussion around the court for progressives? Because as we talked about today, there's a lot of things that progressives really care about that are now going to be in the crosshairs of this court. Um, And, you know, these are the these are the things that people need to be reminded. This is why you go vote. I, I think everyone should focus more on the court. I think unless you you went to law school or you're very highly political, most people don't pay attention to the opinions. And I think that those, even more than like acts of Congress, I think those opinions are what affects people's lives directly. And so I think it's what every single um, person should be thinking when they go into the voting booth. I'll say that it's certainly new for me as a, not a lawyer, not a law student, but as the child of a lawyer, Um, even though I know my dad was reading and talking about everything that was happening in the Supreme Court as I was growing up, it was not on my radar until probably the past couple of years. And so, you know, especially like just digesting the information for this episode, it's been really challenging because it's just a huge learning curve for me. And I think that, you know, maybe I don't represent all Democrats or all progressives just because I'm clearly my own person, but I do think that considering I didn't hear about it from any of my other Democratic and progressive friends until very recently, I just think it's it's an issue that people don't realize is – we. I think we as progressives and as Democrats who know about it need to take the step up and start to educate our fellow voters about it because it's just not coming up. Um, so beyond this fight, there's been a lot of discussion among uh, Democrats and the left about – what to do in the long term about the court. Obviously, a lot of people are really frustrated and angry at Mitch McConnell that his gambit to block Merrick Garland from getting a seat on the court in 2016, that it actually worked because Donald Trump won the election and now not only has uh, Neil Gorsuch taken seat on the court instead of Merrick Garland, but Trump now has a second pick um, in Kavanaugh. You know, there's been a lot of really aggressive responses from from people on the far left saying that Democrats should uh, seek to pack the court um, either with a couple of justices in um, once they take power again to kind of right the wrong that they see that McConnell did or to go even further and uh, pack the court with more justices to ensure that uh, the Supreme Court could not undermine uh, really expansive economic regulations and, and big ideas like Medicare for all. Um, there's also been discussions around 
adjusting lifetime tenure for uh, Supreme Court justices. Uh, as you probably know, you know, Trump is nominating people for life. And uh, the game in this is to nominate people who are as young as they can possibly be, um, so that they can uh, enact their vision and in in part the president's vision on the court for for years to come. But I would think for you know, particularly for you, Tori, and for people who watch the court closely, that some of these uh, moves, particularly packing the court, might be kind of alarming. Um, what do you think about that discussion? I mean, this is really hard for me to say because what happened with the Gorsuch uh, nomination was so offensive and it was so bad. But what I kept thinking through that whole thing was the court was always my constant. And it sounds silly, but I always felt like it was my branch. You know, I looked at like my friends who were in policy. I'm like, you know, y'all deal with Congress. They're a mess. You know, the president is everyone's mess. But um, the judicial branch was always sacred. You know, there was always a system put in place and it was always um, and I felt like the gorgeous nomination kind of ruined that. And so as hard as it is for me to say, I actually wish I know this is not going to happen and I understand the arguments against this, but I wish the Democrats actually would not block a nomination just for the sake of blocking it. Because I think that we're in a slippery slope to where now it's going to become even more partisan and it's not going to be about who's the best person on the court. And part of the reason why we've had such a good court for so long um, was because it was independent of all of this and it's supposed to be independent. So I would actually like to hear Luke's thought on this because I know uh, being in law school, um, you probably have strong opinions on this as well, but that's what I feel. And, but I understand that that's not going to happen. And if I was a Democrat in Congress, then I would, I would block it with everything I had. It just, as an attorney, I wish that that would not happen. Yeah. So I, like, like I was saying, I think, and this is, this is definitely like Luke Boggs fan fiction right now, but like, I would like the Democratic senators to attack the nomination on constitutional grounds. And that be the debate, not partisan grounds. Talk about it that way. The other thing is, and I think this is the most important thing that people just seem to forget, and I need to express my surprise in this to introduce this topic, I'm honestly kind of surprised that Mitch McConnell hasn't packed the court because there's literally nothing stopping him from doing it, and he could. And so people seem to forget that, like, Oh, if we change the rules, the other people will be able to change the rules as well. Because, you know, people forget that uh, who who got rid of the filibuster first. It wasn't Mitch McConnell. It was Harry Reid. And, I mean, there's a decent argument that uh, Neil Gorsuch is sitting on the court right now because of Harry Reid's decision to get rid of the, uh, I mean, to use the nuclear option and get rid of the filibuster for judicial nominees except to the Supreme Court. It made it significantly easier for Mitch McConnell to get rid of it for the Supreme Court since he could say, well, Harry Reid did it two years ago for everybody else, so why why not do it for them? Uh, so I, I am not a fan of ideas of like t- uh, packing the court or anything along those lines because the other team will just turn around against you very quickly and escalation only leads to more escalation. And so I think the way to combat um, egregious you know, deviations from norms are to work very hard to protect norms. And that um, rather than, uh, you know, getting, you know, passing passing law, uh, you know, trying to expand the court, if we get a Democratic Congress, then they should pass laws to prevent Neil Gorsuch, uh, I mean, from uh, Merrick Garland to have the same treatment 
ever again. That, I agree with that, that. You know, we enshrine in law that if the president nominates someone, you have to you have to hear them. You have to give them a hearing. Now you can vote them down, or you waive your rights to it. Right? Yeah. Or you, yeah, because if it was in front of me, if I was on the Supreme Court and that case was in front of me, I would say, unless we're in a state of emergency, you have sixty to ninety days to advise and consent, and if you don't, then you waive your rights to it. That's the way I felt about that issue. And I wish that that's what would happen in the future. I realize if if so, let's say, God forbid, a certain justice dies in the last year of like Trump's, you know, um, president or, you know, in the last of the next five years of his presidency before the election, depending on what happens. Um, and then the Democrats will block him and they'll say, you know, assuming we get we're in power at this time they will say like no like gorsuch got screwed and so whoever trump nominates is going to get screwed during the last year but i still don't think that should happen because i mean like do do whatever you want like play dirty with politics but like keep the court sacred that's how i feel about it yeah i mean it's not that hard to have the moral high ground in this situation because all you have to do is literally give them a hearing and then vote no and if you do that, you have accomplished the moral high ground and you've still blocked them. Exactly. Keep, you know, vote against every single nominee he brings, exactly. but actually hear them out and then say, these are the reasons on constitutional grounds we're not going to support you. And until you bring us somebody that does, then we're not going to support them. Sorry, I keep, and let's keep interrupting you. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to agree with you just on this one thing because it's so important. Let's keep this one thing sacred. You know, it's just I, I I, cannot fathom because you break one rule as we did with Gorsuch and we're opening up something to like something a lot deeper. And it's been I mean, this is what has kept us stable for this long. And I, I really don't want to see us back away from that. So what about uh, changing lifetime tenure, Megan? Mm-hmm. And then I will offer my dissent to all of this. <laughs> so lifetime tenure is a catch 22. Um one of the things that I've voted on, not here in Georgia, but in Louisiana, was whether or not to um, create term limits for justices in different levels of courts. And one of the things that is great about it is, so if you have somebody that's really causing a problem, you can get them out. You're, their, their term is temporary. It's like we keep talking about with the Trump presidency. It's temporary, even if he's in for eight years, heaven forbid, it's only, you know, it it will end. And obviously, it will, you know, having no term limits means it'll end when somebody dies or decides to retire, but it will end probably sooner rather than later if there are term limits. But the problem with creating term limits is that if you have somebody that's doing a good job that you really believe in, for example, I think a lot of us in this pod are big fans of RBG. Um you know, oh yeah, right. Like we don't, we don't want her to go anywhere. And so, if there are term limits, then you know you shoot yourself in the foot if you've got somebody that is speaking for you and that you agree with and is making, you know, making a difference where where she can or he can. Um, then you you don't want a term limit. You don't want to limit that. You want them to stay in the office. So term limits get really tricky. And I I personally am not for term limits, even if it means that, you know, in a situation with Kavanaugh or with Gorsuch or with any of the other justices that I don't really like, even if it means getting them out sooner, I want to keep the ones that I like. Oh, so I get to dissent from all of it. All right. So I want to pack the court and I want to tell you why. 
I think that the ship has sailed long, long, long ago on whether or not the court was a political entity. And I think conservatives, as a part of this Federalist Society push, have always viewed the court as political and as some as a complementary branch of government to achieve their policy aims. And so I don't think that it, <laughs> I know stabbed you right in the heart. Um, now, I don't I don't think that Democrats are going to come out on the good end of this by sort of unilaterally disarming. And so I think that the next administration, the next the next Democratic administration with a Democratic Congress should pass a law to put two more seats on the court, and they should dangle for Republicans a compromise that they will only add two seats to the court and then adopt something like 18-year term limits that are rotating so that every president has the opportunity to I don't know the math on that, but appoint at least one or two justices per term, but that it's a regular rotating thing. And if Republicans are not willing to accept that and sort of bring the court back into something that may be less of a partisan issue, then I'd say go ahead and put three or four more justices on there and, um, you know, let the escalation go. I think that one of the byproducts of that, and, and I'm sorry to do this to your branch of government, Tori, is that it it really undermines the legitimacy of the court. But I think that if Republicans continue this game, then the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the court to me is already in question. And I don't think Democrats get anything out of unilaterally disarming on that point. Um, and then if we're going to, you know, keep adding justices to the court till there's four or 500 of them and, and the thing becomes completely unwieldy, then that's where we'll end up. And some solution will have to come at that point. But, you know, I don't I don't think that the, the Trump era to me has really proven that we are not going to return to something that we saw in the Clinton and Bush eras of you know, sort of fair partisan warfare that is sort of kept within the confines of Congress and the White House. And if if we don't do that, the conservatives are well, well, well ahead of progressives in making the court in arm of their policy goals. And those policy goals, particularly as it relates to things on the court, make it basically impossible to do big advances in social welfare programs, in big government programs that would help a lot of people in any kind of economic regulation. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as far left as some of the democratic socialists who would like to do pack the court so that Medicare for all can get passed without any, any problem or any interference. But um, the fact that they were ready to overturn the affordable care act, a sort of moderate legislation that has roots in conservative uh, governance and a conservative way to address healthcare issues. Um, they're not going to hold back on on bigger things, on bigger solutions to these problems. And so Democrats have to, you know, it sucks, but... So Kyle disagrees with everyone, man, just yeah. like going after us all. Wow. Yeah. Tori and I look like we're, we're fogging over who gets to respond first. <laughs> it's true. Luke, you go for it, man. Okay. Uh, Kyle, you're wrong about everything. <laughs> so like, first off... At least what I'm advocating for is not unilaterally disarming. It is the opposite, which is enshrining the values that we are advocating as norms and 
taking the knives out of their hands and saying, these are no longer norms. These are laws because you abused this system. And so we no longer will let you abuse it. And so I think if anything, that is better. And if what will reinstitute people's trust in the system is people securing the system and making it stronger rather than continuing to break it. For and those while, of you at home, I'm fist no. pumping this. Go yes. ahead. <laughs> Keep going. Yes, thank you. Um, and so, I mean, on that front, like, I, uh, that, I could not disagree stronger because what will guarantee that people don't have faith in the institution is continuingly to, continuing to destroy the institution rather than trying to build it back up. I mean, after Watergate... Many people would think that no one would ever have faith in government ever again, but I, we took some very concrete ske- steps to change government after Watergate that were effective, even you know uh, if it was temporary, it, it was, and it, it improved the system significantly. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to, uh, we're unfortunately going to probably get to test your hypothesis in the sense that um, if you ask anyone under current legal interpretation Medicare for All actually has a much stronger constitutional foundation than the Affordable Care Act because of just the way that, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act worked versus how Social Security and Medicaid worked. It's it's basically Commerce Clause, very easy argument that Medicare for All, unless they make it a very strange system that has a lot of bizarre regulations – it should be a slam dunk, very easy constitutional argument. It would be difficult to go against it unless the court is, as you think it is, Kyle, a completely partisan arm of the Republican Party, which I frankly don't think it is. Because I think, again, and they, I can get to say this during the LBGT uh, portion, but I think, like, I don't just, I just don't see John Roberts doing that because it's so obvious, it'd be so obviously partisan that he would go down in history as a, a, partisan justice and that seems to be a thing he hates the most and um he would much rather just chip away at at things uh than than deal with that and because again depending on how they formed it medicare for all they have to like say that medicare is also unconstitutional probably i just don't see them doing that um and so that that's where we stand and so we have to rebuild the institutions to improve democracy and to get us to a place where uh this can't happen again or at least it can't happen in the same way avoid the same you know pothole uh next time and i think we're capable of doing that and we'll have to swallow the justices that we have but um i think some things run it's better I mean, this is so naive, and, like, I realize this is not going to happen. I know this is not going to happen, and I understand the anger and why people would argue with me against this, but shouldn't some things be done just because they're right? I mean, like, it sounds childish, but, like, it's the right thing to do. Like, it's the right thing to, like, give somebody a hearing when somebody nominates them, because if not, then, like, you're really... Like, it's not just Supreme Court nominations. It's every nomination. It's every decision. It's to advise and consent, like... So I, I yes, I'm with Luke. I'm sorry, Kyle. I'm descending. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I and, think and, on that point specifically, I you know, my my problem with sort of forcing the Senate to either put up or shut up on nominees is that if you know, the, the further this goes down the road of being a political issue, more so than a legal issue and an issue of justices, uh, you know, qualifications and characteristics that 
they would just vote down every nominee that they would see. I mean, Orrin Hatch was saying prior to the 2016 election that if Hillary won the election, they would try to withhold that seat open the whole her whole first term and wait for the next election. And I don't know if that actually would have happened or not, but I think it's going to come to a point where you know, even voting them down is would to me become sort of a routine thing where both parties in that instance would just decide that if you if you don't have control of both the White House and the Senate, there will be no seats filled and we'll just vote down repeatedly. And, you know, I don't I mean, that's essentially that, what's happened in history. I mean, that's what's happening right now. I mean, and and I think it's worse because here's the difference between the scenario that Tori and I want and the scenario you want. The scenario you want is whenever someone has a political majority, they rig the system as far as they can in their direction. And that instead of having to memorize nine justices names, I have to memorize 21 and I can barely remember nine. I guarantee you, if you quiz me, I will forget one. I do not um, want to read 20 dissenting opinions in law school. That sounds horrible. Yes, exactly. So for, for the sake of lawyers, don't make our jobs harder. Um, the second thing is, is right now when Mitch McConnell said we're not bringing up Merrick Garland good day sir then like there was no opportunity to talk about him on the Senate floor in committee anywhere else and so if you enshrine in law that this is the process for nominations I would rather die on that hill than die on the short-term hill of getting two extra votes on the Supreme Court and being able to do uh, wherever I wanted briefly, because if you make it so that you have to bring up every nomination in into committee and you have to vote them down, then that means you are giving Democrats an opportunity in committee to say, you know, this is a good qualified person. This is how I'm showing it's a qualified person that will be on TV. That will be, you know, not everybody watches because- C-SPAN, but it'll be there. There'll be a discussion about it in which Republicans will have to come up with an argument of why they don't like this person. And Democrats because will as well. They're by gonna- extension, by giving every single person in the Senate the right to like vote yes or no, you're giving the people the right to vote yes or no. Because as Luke was saying, you are accountable for your votes. And so I think, you know, the reason Carlin didn't go on the floor isn't because is because I think he had a really good chance of getting on the court. And so I right. think, yeah, I it, that's something in... Even getting voted no is different than not getting a vote because you're not just denying those senators a vote, you're denying the people a vote. Yeah, if you made Susan Collins and Pat Toomey vote against Merrick Garland, they just wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Like, they would not have done it. And so, that I mean, that's that's why you want to enshrine this stuff in the systems. I wish I could see Kyle's face because I can't, and I feel like... Oh, it, the, the lawyers are coming in yeah. strong on this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because the thing is, is you do not fix norm-breaking by breaking more norms. And I, uh, democracy is not completely failed yet. And Pe- I, I just... is getting because, heated. And, and this, this is where I will end unless prompted further. Like, one of the biggest things that the Obama administration had to deal with and were constantly getting held up by in the Senate was them just not hearing their nominations and not just their judicial nominations, like for deputy administrators of agencies and stuff like that. And so if if the you know Senate has to have a reason 
to not bring up those nominees and not bring them to a vote, I think that's better. And while does that mean that when a Republican administration gets in that Democrats will have a harder time of blocking some of their people that we disagree with on purely policy grounds? Yeah, but I'm willing to pay that price if that's the price that I pay for the next Democratic president to get to appoint everybody they want to appoint. Sorry, Kyle. I'm still with Tori and Luke on this. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. Thank you. I'm actually like I'm just quietly over here in my little corner taking notes, and, like things mm. that I want to learn more about since I am not a lawyer or a law student. There's still time. Oh, we got pretty wonky though. Don't don't beat yourself. Up. All right. Cool. Well, that's okay. I just wanted to offer up a, a gem to some future opposition research intern for my political opponents uh, who mm. are going to have to suffer listening through this podcast for <laughs> hours and hours and hours on end looking for dirt on me. Do you guys want to talk about Kennedy's legacy a little bit? I do. I want to rip him apart. No, I want to say how much I love him. All right. well, <laughs> Man, the lawyers are taking over. I'm sorry. I'm, gonna, it's all I'm, good. I'm, just, I'm just taking notes over here. Like, I'm like, I, I'm not <laughs> sorry, guys. really sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm okay. doing, but I'm taking notes. Okay, well, I'm going to go first. Yeah, 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 you go first. I'm going to go pr- first, you, and you I will make it up, short. Tear him down. And then I will, yeah, I will let you finish because, all right, so I had the privilege of studying under a balanced court. So I went to law school when the court was balanced, and I think with a balanced court, comes incredible decisions on both sides because when you don't know how the court is going to land and you're like 100% responsible for every way that you rule I think judges make better decisions I think better opinions are written and I think better dissents are written and I think Justice Kennedy had a lot of flaws there are so many things I disagree with him on but I mean when Justice Scalia died I cried (laughs) when Justice Kennedy died I cried because like he's a legacy and I mean he did give um I mean, me and Megan both identify as LGBT, and, like, he did rule on that. There is a reason why, like, a lot of us do have rights that we have, and it's because the court was balanced and Justice Kennedy was a swing vote. He did, like, lean conservative, and he did a lot of things wrong. But also, the fact that he swwung both ways... <laughs> LGBT. <laughs> Some people know both ways. Sexual joke. Insert here. But that means that, like, he also, like, made an incredible court. So we are not just ending Justice Kennedy. We are ending an era of a balance. All right, Luke, go ahead and tear him apart. Okay, one, let's let's just all agree. Let's put let's put LBGT issues and it's and it's very important, very sacred box because he was awesome on that. And he wrote very eloquently on that. And I'm not going to argue against that because it's totally true that he did that. But however, he did that because it was part of his larger ideology, which was based fundamentally in his favorite novel, which is 1984, where he just does not trust the government at all. And the biggest progressive rallying cry when it comes to the court is Citizens United. And he is 100% responsible for that because the Citizens United case was a smaller, narrower issue in which they did not have to go as far as they did, but Kennedy demanded that they did and they went way out of their way to delay ruling on that case so that Kennedy could go way out of his way to uh, make the Citizens United case go the way it did. Kennedy also interrupted female justices more than any other justice on the court. That means Antolin Scalia interrupted female justices less than Kennedy. I agree with Tory entirely that Kennedy, as being the swing vote person, did a great job of, like, making people have to work really hard to convince him, but he kind of sucked. 
as himself. He just was a facilitator for other people's brilliance. And again, LBT, LBGT issues. Great job. Loved his writing. It broke it's my heart. It's not just LGBT. Uh, never mind. I told but you. Like, you finish, you go too. Ahead. I mean, yeah, he had, he was, and he was a good writer. And I agree with you. I was sad when Scalia died just because I understood what his argument was every time. And I appreciated that. And I felt that with Kennedy a lot as well. And I think Kennedy was pretty good on a lot of rights issues just because he um, recognized the changing norms in the country in a way that many other justices don't when it comes to fundamental rights. And I think that's critical. But, I mean, beyond that, he ruled the wrong, like, he ruled the wrong way on almost everything else that's important. And the worst part is it's all the boring issues that people, uh, you know, who have to be as wonky or wonkier than us care about he was always in the wrong position like almost every time he was the wrong position on aca he's the wrong position on unions he's the wrong positions on most economic regulation and so it's just like i can't mourn him going away because he was so unreliable on almost everything else except you know some fundamental rights stuff and he just he, i didn't like him being the most powerful man in america it was it was terrifying to me to have one person who could determine everything and we had a much better time with sandra day o'connor and him going back and forth on, on that so my can't my anti kennedy grant is over i'm just i'm just mad because everyone's singing his praises and like are mourning Luke, his one loss. day let's have like a peach pod that's just us arguing about legal shit and <laughs> like and that'll be entertaining yeah because for us only <laughs> for us there there has to be some like legal people listening to this podcast right Right. UGA law students, this is all for you guys. I'm yes. entertained, but you know, I also can. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. I can also just see it happening. If if only listeners could see the facial expressions on these two, it's yeah. priceless. I know when I'm trying not to like talk back, but I no, appreciate what you argue said. with me. Tell me why I'm wrong. No, 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 no. I said I would let you finish, and I will not argue, well, I'm, and I'm, I'm finished, sticking to that. So. Okay, good. <laughs> anyway, Kyle, take it home. <laughs> hey, Kyle, would you yeah. like your show back? <laughs> 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 no, I actually don't really want it back. I'm, I'm giving it to you guys. Um, all right. Well, anything else on the court? Any? Uh, well, let's do this. Let's do uh, final predictions. Does is Kavanaugh going to be the next justice on the Supreme Court? Oh yeah, Tor- there's no way to block it. Yes. As- assuming all we know now, and there's no you know dirty laundry yet to be revealed. Yeah. I'm withholding judgment until the Mueller report comes Wait, out. Wait, you can't withhold judgment and make this. Kyle, you're so like, like argumentative on this one, but I dig it. I host okay. the show, so I'm withholding judgment. I, I, I'm withholding judgment because I think the Mueller report has the potential to blow this thing completely out of the water. Um, absent if Mueller comes out and says, eh, Trump's an idiot, but he didn't collude, then yeah, Kavanaugh will be on the court. Well, I mean, I hope that your prediction. Well, I was going to say, I, I will add an asterisk to Kyle's prediction in saying that I think he's right, but not for the reason he thinks he's right. I think if Kevin Ogg gets held up, it will be because Congress gets so ridiculously busy and so insane that they just literally don't have enough time. Well, yeah, they have to this fall. We can close on this point this fall. They have to keep the government open They're They're almost done with all their budgeting, but they may not get there if uh, this thing blows up. They have a confirmation on their desks. They have um, some reaction to this Mueller report if it if it turns out to be something that they have to react to. 
and uh, they have the midterms coming up, so none of them really want to be in Washington anyways. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but with that, I think we are going to leave it there. Uh, y'all, I had fun on this one. I did too. Thanks, guys. We should yell at each other more. It's fun. I know. It got heated <laughs> yeah, this time. It did. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we are going to leave it there and let y'all get out of here. So we will talk to y'all later. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.